Welcome to A Year with Jesus, where we're spending time on how to think, live, and love like Jesus. I'm Philip. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm Bill. I'm messing with you. Oh, man. This is Matthew chapters 22 and 23. Okay. Besides our identity crisis, I think that we actually have a lot of really cool things to cover here. So yeah. in Matthew 22, Jesus starts telling a story about a feast that cannot be missed. That's right. That he prepares this dinner. He invites all the people to come. And in verse 5, it says they paid no attention. In fact, they went on their own way, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest seized the slaves and mistreated them. It's like he prepared this, this feast and no one came to it. Except for who? Well, except for some that had been overlooked by everyone else. Yeah, so in, in chapter 22, verse 8, so no one comes. And so he says, you know what? The wedding is ready. We're going to have this feast. We're going to invite people in. So he says, go and find and call those who are not worthy. So they go to the highways. They find as many as they can, and they call them into the wedding feasts. And and you have everybody. They get to come to this feast. Yeah, his house is filled because it shows that this king— this king wants to honor his son, mm-hmm. right? This is a once-in-a-lifetime event. We've already learned what marriage is, right, from the beginning. This is yeah. a one-time thing. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime event. It's not to be missed. This is not just any regular feast with the king. Mm-hmm. This is a wedding feast with the king. And the fact that he has to go and find people out from the highways because his wonderfully gracious invitation had been ignored mm-hmm. and rejected by so many— shows us his determination to be hospitable and to fill his house to the glory of his son. I love that so much. Again, and and, and I think there's a lesson in there for us as well. So in verse 12, there's a guy that comes who wasn't dressed in wedding clothes, and and he's like, the man is speechless when they ask him, why don't you have your wedding clothes? And he actually ends up getting cast out. I think we realize that those people who came from the outsides, that came from the highways, the slaves that were brought in, we know at least that from the text here, I think there's an implication that they were changed. They, their clothes were changed into their wedding feast. Yes. It's not like God is saying, bring everyone in and they can stay how they are. We know from the New Testament epistles that God calls us in and he calls us to be clothed again. He calls us to be renewed. He calls us to put off the old man and put on the new man. And I think that's part of what's happening here at this wedding feast. Absolutely. And so those that are clothed in Christ, they get to enjoy the richness of the king's household. They get to enjoy this great celebration. But the one who refuses to be transformed, that person was cast out. And he uses that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm -hmm. If you think about something that you've been aiming for, hoping for, anticipating, and then, oh no, You missed your plane by five minutes, and there's the plane pulling down the runway, and you're not on it. We we kind of grit our teeth, and we just go, oh, we're so disappointed because we've missed out. The picture at the end of this parable is don't miss out on heaven. Don't have that moment where you grit your teeth, where tears stream down your face Mm -hmm. because you were able to come. The price was paid for you to come, but you rejected that opportunity. That's right. And it says, many are called, but few are chosen. I don't think that the Lord is saying, well, I want these and I want, and I don't want those. God is calling everyone, but the people that are chosen to come in are the people who come. They're the ones that respond and accept his generosity, accept the, the great cost that he's paid to bring us into the family. Yeah, as opposed to doing what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyer will do throughout the rest of this chapter. I mean, really chapter 21 and now even into chapter 22, Jesus has got this feast that he's trying to invite everybody to, 
And it seems like what the religious leaders are more concerned with is finding a way to trap him. Yes, the last week of Jesus' life was a week full of teaching. That's why we have so many chapters that cover this time period. But that teaching is often prompted by those adversaries that come to him, not with honest and sincere questions, but with questions designed to trap him. Mm -hmm. And so we get another one of those questions here as they uh, challenge Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. And Christ, of course, comes back to the very heart of the issue. How does he respond to their question? He says, first of all, he calls them out for being hypocrites. He knows the spirit of the question. And then he says, show me the coin. And then I love what he says here because, again, he said, he'll say, like, look, if, if render to Caesar what Caesar's and to God's the things that belong to God. And it's interesting because the scribes and the Pharisees, how would they have seen themselves? They were, well, we are, we're God's people. We belong to God. And so Jesus is even calling them out and saying, that money stuff, give that to Caesar because that doesn't belong to God. God doesn't care about that. What God wants are his people. And there's a huge application for us in that. Mm -hmm. What in my life belongs to God? Well, first and foremost, it's my heart and my soul. Am I giving that back to the Lord? And then it's everything he's entrusted me with. We are just stewards, stewards of our family, stewards of our talents. Absolutely. And and I, I wonder if, you know, he asks them as they, they bring him the coin, whose likeness and inscription is this? They could see it and say, that belonged to Caesar. As people look at us, do they know who we belong to? Can, we, can they see the inscription of we belong to, to Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Or do we belong, like you're saying, do I belong to my job? Do I belong to my family? Do I belong to my favorite sports team? Is that the inscription that I bear on my chest, the inscription that I bear in my heart? That's a big thing for you to say in a Red Sox jersey. I know. I know. They <laughs> okay. can't see us right now. There we go. No, that's right. We are made in the image of God. And this is just like Jesus had gone back to the beginning to emphasize marriage and what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Now he's emphasizing to us who we honor through our lives. That's right. And so they hear this, they marvel. They don't have anything to say. So they go away. So then it's like, boop, boop, boops. The next group, sorry for going boop, boop, boops. But the next group of people come and now it's the Sadducees and they don't believe in the resurrection. And so they say, look, a guy lives, he is married. They have, you know, he and his wife have no kids. He dies. And it's happened seven, seven times. Seven times. So in the resurrection, you can just imagine, they, they think they've tracked him. Well, right. in the resurrection, Jesus, who's she married to? And Jesus has to come and give an answer here based on a very careful reading of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, have you not read, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Their mistake is because they do not appreciate the details given to us in God's word, and they do not appreciate the power of God to totally transform in the resurrection. And to know that we will be in such a glorified state, mm -hmm. that marriage, as much of a blessing as it is, is a temporary relationship here in this life. And we have a greater state to be in with God. Absolutely. Again, they, he says they don't even understand the scriptures, nor do they understand the power, the power of God. I think we live in a society today where there's a lot of philosophers, a lot of theologians who maybe understand things about the scriptures, but deny the power of God. And they never really understand who God is. And there's some other people, I think, who maybe think that or believe that God is, you know, supremely powerful, but they don't really understand the scriptures. And a lack of understanding of either of the two leads to this sort of mentality where we don't really fully see God for who he is. But again, just like in verse 22 and verse 35, the crowds, they hear this, they're astonished at his teachings. So what that means then is that the Pharisees have come up and they've struck out 
And now the Sadducees have come up and they've struck out and not just struck out, but been amazed that Jesus is clearly the one that's right that's in these right. situations. That's right. And so now they're going to bring a scholar of the law. Like we're not just sending the nobody, you know, we're going to bring a scholar of the law. He comes and he asks him a question. Okay, teacher, just like every time it's begun with teacher, or we know that you're a good teacher who knows or truthful, you teach the way of God and truth. All right, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus' answer here is famous all over the world. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So why answer like this? Because again, my guess is the reason why they're asking is they're trying to say, aha, look, you're giving this law more weight than this law. And you're just like, you're denouncing us for doing things. You're doing the same thing as us. So what is it that's so unique about Jesus's answer here? Right. He doesn't fall for the trap of prioritizing one way of pleasing God over another way of pleasing God. What Jesus does is come back to the all-encompassing foundation of love, because yeah. God himself is love. And so loving God with all that we are, not just a superficial love, mm-hmm. not a love in name only, but a love that penetrates every area of our life and then flows out to the way we treat other people. That love is driving every commandment mm. in the way that we please God and the way that we care for those around us. So, so then they take it from the question about the law, so they make it a little bit bigger. All right, so what about the Christ? Whose son is he? And Jesus comes back and says, How does David in the spirit call him the Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they hear this and they're just, they're stumped. Yes. You know, and, and Peter will actually come back to this idea in Acts chapter 2 on, on, when, on, on the day of Pentecost, but there, no one is able to answer him a word. They don't even dare to bring anything up. So in chapter 23, Jesus dares to bring things up himself. That's right. They've struck out completely, and so now it's his turn, and he comes showing a broken heart over their resistance and refusal to give honest attention to these years that Mm -hmm. he's been with them, these years that he's performing miracles, these years that he's been verifying through the Scriptures— that the Messiah has come to take their sins away, and yet they are holding on to their own positions, and he's devastated. And I think there's multiple things within the text here that that I think are important for us to to see, because at the end of the text, and we'll get to this in in a few minutes here, but he laments over the destruction of Jerusalem. He laments over the fact that he loves Jerusalem. He loves Israel, and they're going to be gone. But this is why, what happened, like what he says in the beginning part, of, I believe, of, ch- of chapter 23 is why they're going to be destroyed. So he starts with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, look, you guys, you impose things on people, and you don't do anything. That level of hypocrisy. Correct. You don't do anything. You tell people, stop doing this, start doing this, and you don't do anything. In verse 5, they do their deeds to be noticed by men. And we've talked, you know, we talked, again, he talked in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He literally says, do not do things to be noticed by men. He tells, he calls the Pharisees, everything that you do, the only reason why you do it is to be noticed by people. And it's to exalt themselves, Mm -hmm. right? They want to be exalted in their reputation. They want to be exalted in their um, respectful greetings. They want to be exalted as being very knowledgeable, but they're not living it. And so he points out eight different ways they are falling short, eight different ways that they have violated loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And I think it's really important to dig in on a couple of these. Yeah. In verse 15, he tells the scribes and the Pharisees that they will travel over sea and land in order to convert someone to their way of thinking, and they only end up making them twice as much a son of hell. Mm-hmm. We need to understand that they are not at fault for asking people to be obedient to commandments. They are at fault for asking people to be obedient to their commandments, to their traditions. They've set themselves up as the authority. And when we are seeking to make disciples today, we aren't asking people to follow our commandments. We're asking people to follow King Jesus. That's right. We're asking people to respect his authority, to respect the way he answers these questions Mm -hmm. and the way that he instructs us about things from the very beginning. So we don't want to minimize authority. We just want to take it off of ourselves and give all that glory and all that authority to our king. Absolutely. Again, when you think about what he says as far as the greatest command, you take that and you just— you, 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 you take this text in 23 and you just put it in front of that and you ask yourselves, okay, in what way did they fail yeah. to do all these things? I mean, for example, in verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you tithe. And notice they're tithing every little bit that they're supposed to, mint and dill and cumin. He says, but there's the weightier provisions of the law that you have completely neglected. You didn't care about justice. You didn't care about mercy. You didn't care about faithfulness. And, and for them, so they're they're doing, you know, they're nitpicking. They're making sure that with some things, they're being extra, extra careful and then neglecting whole other things in the law. And I think, again, those are things that we need to be careful with. Like, am I paying special attention to some things in God's law to the neglect of other things that God has clearly asked of me? Very good. And so if we do that, we become blind. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to come back and let the Scriptures cleanse us of that problem. Let the Scriptures instruct us in the significance of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Otherwise, we end up being like these that he describes as only concerned with outward appearances in Mm -hmm. verse 28, only cleaning up what everybody else can see, but not cleaning up the heart. We need Christ as our ultimate model and example to show us how to live with this pure and clean heart. Now, it gets really powerful when he says in verse 34 to 36 that this generation, this generation is going to bring upon them all the guilt, the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Why is this generation going to be viewed by Jesus as carrying a huge burden of guilt? Yeah, because earlier he talked about, again, them killing the prophets. And this is what you've always done. You've always killed the prophets. You've always killed God's people. You never listened to the people that God has sent, kind of that parable of the vineyard. Right. And now God has sent the— If it was one thing to kill the prophets of God, to, to kill the slaves that God sent— how much worse, how much more guilt would it be to kill the son himself, the great prophet that Israel had always been looking forward to? It, they, they have found it in the person of Jesus, and they're going to put him to death. Yeah, it's the highest level of rejection. Mm-hmm. You haven't just rejected the ambassadors. You've rejected Emmanuel. That's right. You've rejected God with us. And who, So who else can God send right. to get you to repent? If, if you wouldn't listen to the son— like, what, what else can God do? And I think that's what lends him to verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. The picture is like, who else is God? Like, he knows. This is the last week of his life. He knows he is going to die. And he's like, what else? What else could have been done? Nothing. Be- because of, again, their heart. So as we try to help others see Jesus, and as we're trying to fix our eyes on Jesus this year, don't we see 
that he's the one that is the pinnacle Mm -hmm. of God's effort and God's um, revelation in order to redeem man. He's right there. Why would we turn our backs on him? That's right. And and to see that like God, he doesn't, I don't think he's, he's happy over the fact that people who are lost have to be destroyed. I mean, he's, he's just, so he will do what he needs to do. His wrath will be uh, poured out. But I, I don't think there's a sense where God is, you know, up there cheering, excited over the fact that he has to destroy his creation. I mean, he's longing to bring them back. We see that longing with this tenderness. We see this maternal instinct in the way that Jesus figuratively uh, elaborates on this. And as we look at every time they came up to bat, every time they brought a question, they were just trying to test him. We need to make sure in our lives that we open the scriptures with hearts ready to receive and hearts ready to listen to what God has provided for us, Mm -hmm. bringing us back into his family. So this is a sad spot to end, but we know that the life of Jesus here is coming to a conclusion. He's been telling his disciples again and again of where this is going. And I think it should just leave an impression on all of us that out of love, he was willing to endure this. Out of love, he was willing to pay this price. Absolutely. Again, and that for them, like— we have to make sure that what we're doing is not in, a, in an effort to, to want to test Jesus. The reason they tested him was because they wanted to keep living their hypocritical life. That's what it is. That was at the core of it for them. As they were living, they had set a certain style of life. And they wanted to keep living that. And coming to Jesus will test that. Jesus will expose your hypocrisy. He'll expose the lies that you've been telling yourself, the lies that you've been telling the people around you. And he'll, and he'll help you understand, like, look, if, if you choose to not listen, if you choose to not obey— There is destruction that comes at the end of all of this. That's exactly right. And yet, we also want to keep in mind, when we do obey, what is he going to bring us back to? He's going to bring us back to a heart full of love for God. He's going to bring us back to justice and mercy and faithfulness. Isn't it crazy that the deception of Satan and the deceitfulness of sin is so uh, is such a trap and such a prison that we resist moving towards mm-hmm. these really good things. And so Jesus, his heartbreak there is because we are turning our backs on really good blessings. And and, and the real blessing is this wedding feast, going back to, to, to chapter 22, that there is this wedding feast that's for everyone, that are, are even for those who are unworthy, because no one is worthy of this wedding feast. And that's why what the scribes and the Pharisees, that's why they're testing, that's why their hypocrisy was so glaring, because God was inviting everyone to come to this feast, your neighbors, your friend, your coworkers, who you think that person would never serve God, that person is a hypocrite, that person is lost. Even them, God invites them to the wedding feast. And that's oh, this whole last week is about bringing people home. That's wonderful. Thank you for following along with us today in the book of Matthew. We hope you'll join us next week as we get into chapter 24 and chapters 25.